tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Britt. And we're the hosts of Microbiome Matters. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks for tuning in, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're enjoying listening, we'd really appreciate if you could rate the Microbiome Matters podcast on your streaming app and share it with your friends and colleagues. This will really help us to reach more people. That's it from us. Back to the episode. Hi, I'm Niv. And I'm Britt. And welcome to the Microbiome Matters podcast. Today we have with us Talia Cacelli, a UK-registered specialist eating disorder dietitian who'll be chatting with us about the links between eating disorders and gut health. She's the founder of Talia Cacelli Nutrition and runs a successful online clinic, leading a team of specialist dietitians to support people to recover from their eating disorders, disordered eating, and gut health issues. Talia is passionate about bringing balance back to nutrition and helping people to recognize that perfect diets don't exist. You can learn more about the clinic at www.taliacacelli.com and follow Talia on Instagram at TC Nutrition. Thank you for joining us today, Talia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about gut health and eating disorders. To start off, could you please explain to us what an eating disorder is? Yeah, of course. So an eating disorder is a mental health condition where people will use or control food to cope with feelings and other situations or or life events. So when we think about eating disorders or clinical eating disorders, they're eating disorders that meet certain criteria. So there's diagnostic criteria. Um, People might be aware of some of the more common ones, so anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. Um, Collectively, they take up about 50% of eating disorders, but then the other 50% is a classification by what's known as other specified feeding or eating disorders. So I think it's really important for people to recognize that for a lot of people struggling with their relationship with food, They might not tick all the boxes of those clinical eating disorders that I mentioned earlier, but their experience is just as valid and it's just as important for them to receive help. Um, So with eating disorders, usually um, people are engaging in restrictive dieting um, or engaging in unhealthy uh, behaviours when it comes to compensatory behaviours. So for example, they might engage in behaviours like uh, vomiting or compulsive exercise, um, laxative abuse, which can all impact the gut. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later as well. Um, So yeah, the eating disorders are a spectrum. It will look a little bit different for everyone. And that's also something that's really important to recognize. Um, And would you say there are perhaps any misconceptions around eating disorders? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many. Um, I think some of the most common misconceptions would be that you have to be underweight to have an eating disorder, which is absolutely not the case. Majority of people who have an eating disorder, in quotation marks, would be a healthy weight or even a weight overweight or into the obese categories when we're, we're looking at BMI. I hate to use BMI, but when we're speaking about it like that, not everyone falls into those underweight categories. Um, I think there's the misconception as well that eating disorders only affect 
affect females when we know that um, about one in three people with eating disorders are male. Um, and I think the other misconception too is that you can't recover from an eating disorder. And we know that it is absolutely possible to recover from an eating disorder. So that's just a few misconceptions. There's definitely many more. There's a lot of shame um, and stigma associated with eating disorders. So I think it's really important. I think it's so great that you had me on the podcast as well to actually talk about it and educate people and bring awareness to eating disorders and how they can impact other areas of your physical health as well. So you mentioned that there's this link between eating disorders and gut health. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so up to uh, 98, yeah, up to 98% of people can experience gastrointestinal issues that have an eating disorder. So the link is extremely high. Um, and there's several reasons why someone with an eating disorder might develop gastrointestinal issues or have their gut health impacted. Um, one is that when people uh, have an eating disorder, they're likely to be malnourished. Again, I just want to reinforce that you don't have to be underweight to be malnourished. You can be malnourished at any weight or in any body shape. Um, so malnutrition will alter gastrointestinal function through both a change in terms of the gut microbiome, um, but also on a physiological level when we're looking at the digestive system becoming weaker. So when someone is on a restrictive diet, they're not nourishing their body, not giving their body enough energy through food, the body has to use and source energy from somewhere else. And what the body does is it starts to tap into fat stores and also starts to break down muscle and converts those proteins into energy. So people often think, oh, maybe, you know, I might lose some muscle on my arms and my legs, or I'll just feel a bit weaker. But you have to think about all of those internal organs, which are major muscles in our body as well. And your digestive system, that long nine meter tube is going to be one of those systems um, that gets impacted as well. So the muscles can become very weak. Um, and the impact that that has on the digestion is that people can experience constipation and diarrhea, gastroparesis, so slowing down of the transit of food through the digestive system, early satiety, so feeling full very quickly abdominal pain and bloating, um, all as a result of just the gut not working very well. So that's um, one reason why people might experience digestive issues. Another is engaging in those eating disorder behaviours, which I spoke about. So laxative abuse, so when people use too many laxatives as a form of weight control, um, that can cause a lot of diarrhoea, bloating, malabsorption, purging behaviours. So that can cause digestive issues in terms of even just reflux, um, not being able to digest and absorb normal volumes of food. And also purging changes the pressure to your internal um, system and your pelvic floor, which can then have an impact on your digestion, constipation and diarrhea. So yeah, definitely eating behaviours. And then we know that for some people with eating disorders, there was a pre-existing gut issue. So some people might have had allergies or intolerances. Um, they may have had IBS. We know that there's higher rates of IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease, in people with eating disorders, high rates of celiac disease. So people with eating disorders, uh, with celiac disease or IBD, there's that increased risk of developing an eating disorder. Um, and then the fourth reason why someone might have gut issues with eating disorders is that prior to developing an eating disorder or even during an eating disorder, um, they might develop what we call a functional gut disorder. So that miscommunication between the gut and the brain. 
It's really great to have you on our podcast to raise awareness to our healthcare professional community about the impact that eating disorders can have on gut health and the digestive system and wider health as well. Something we'd like to talk about now is the increasing research around the gut-brain axes and some studies have reported that certain species of bacteria are associated with cravings, hunger and satiety. Could you summarise for us what we currently know about this? Yeah, so when we think about our our body, and this has probably been covered on the podcast in other episodes, is that we have about 10 times more microbial cells than human cells in our body. So when we think about the importance of our gut bacteria and our microbiome, we know that it has such a huge influence on how we digest and absorb different nutrients, minerals, vitamins. It's so important and it's key in the synthesis of different enzymes, amino acids, and production of short-chain fatty acids. So that communication between our gut and our brain is mediated by our gut microbiome. So we really do need a flourishing gut microbiome um, because that impacts our digestion as well because there's that constant communication between feelings of fullness, hunger, and the types of foods that our body needs. So especially when it comes to short-chain fatty acids, for example, we know that they are really an important part of regulating our appetite um, in addition to different hormones, other sort of chemicals that are involved in that process. So so there's definitely research to back up the importance of having a diverse diet and a diverse microbiome uh, because that's really essential to regulating our appetite. Oh, that is a really interesting area of research. And while we're on this topic of gut health and microbiota and uh, eating disorders, we're wondering what gut health or microbiota-focused strategies can potentially help in the management of eating disorders? Mm. There is so much research in this space that's coming out. It's a really exciting area, as I'm sure it is with so many other different um, yeah, physical and mental health conditions. Um, so what we know about eating disorders, obviously the restrictive eating has a huge impact on the gut. Um, and we know that there's going to be a imbalance of microbial diversity in the gut when people have eating disorders. So when we're thinking about strategies to help our clients to improve both their relationship with food um, and their digestive health, there's there's different areas that we can focus on. From a nutritional point of view, um, of course, one of the main aims is to ensure that our clients are fully nourished. So that is supporting them to be at a healthy weight for them whether that means that they might need to restore some weight or remain at a weight that they're already at. Um, So that's really important. We're looking at increasing the diversity of food in our diet. So the more diversity we have in our diet means the more um, diverse our gut microbiome will be. Different bacteria um, flourish off different types of food. So some will flourish off proteins, carbohydrates, etc. So really looking at that nutritional diversity, in particular plant-based diversity is really important. So supporting our clients to get the variety of different fruits and vegetables and carbohydrates, uh, especially, which for someone recovering from an eating disorder, especially when it comes to introducing different types of carbohydrates and different cooking methods, that can be a really big hurdle to overcome because because of the fear associated with eating carbohydrates or certain types of carbohydrates. Um, Other strategies would be looking 
looking at the introduction of fermented foods such as kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi. So we know that they are super important in terms of increasing the um, health of our guts. And then more interestingly, so there's three areas that are receiving a lot of research when it comes to eating disorders and gut health management. So one is um, fecal transplants. So there's been a couple of case studies on fecal transplants for people with eating disorders, which have shown some really positive results. The second is gut-directed hypnotherapy, um, which is very a very new area of research. So it's really targeting the gut-brain axis. Um, and we know from studies outside of eating disorders that can help to reduce IBS symptoms, so irritable bowel, and also reduce psychological burden, so that anxiety as well, especially in the context of eating disorders being a mental health illness. Um, and then the third, which is really a space to watch, is the recommendation uh, to include both pre and probiotics in the diet. Um, and why I say it's important to watch this space is that they're still doing research on the specific strains of bacteria, which are directed specifically for eating disorder management. Well, that's really um, interesting to hear about some of those um, more holistic approaches to looking at gut health and the microbiota in the management of eating disorders. There are restrictive diets that are commonly used in the management of gastrointestinal diseases, such as with celiac disease, IBD and IBS, as well as other medical conditions. How can dietitians or other clinicians support clients and patients that follow these diets and ensure that they have healthy relationships with food? Yeah, it's a really difficult one because, as I mentioned earlier, we know that there is an increased risk of developing an eating disorder from having uh, celiac disease, IBD or IBS. And that is due to the increased need to be aware of what you're eating Potentially, you might have to look at ingredients lists, labels. Um, you might need to calculate food in some way. Um, diabetes is another one um, because of the hyperfocus on carbohydrates and grams of carbohydrates to manage insulin. So we know that these group of, of patients are at risk of developing disordered eating or an eating disorder. So I think the first thing really is being aware of that increased risk as a clinician um, to be able to properly assess uh, the people that we're working with and including questions about relationship with food because everyone has a relationship with food. And I think now, especially as dietitians and clinicians working in this you know, day and age, is that we need to be aware of that, that we all eat, we all have a relationship with food. So even though I'm an eating disorder specialist, I think that all clinicians, regardless of the area that they're working in, need to actually upskill um, in their knowledge of eating disorders and disordered eating because it's going to start to pop up in many areas of, of health and different clinical areas. Um, so I think it's really important to work as a team, refer to a psychologist when needed, if there is any indication that someone has an unhealthy relationship with food. And I think also it's important that we, we don't sort of box ourselves in, that we start to work together as clinicians. So for example, in my clinic, yes, I specialize in eating disorders and I help people with gut health issues, but I'm not a gut health dietitian. So I know my limits even within that space. So we work very closely at my clinic with a specialist gut health dietitian. If any of our clients have, for example, celiac disease, IBD or IBS, so then that they can receive more targeted support 
Um, so we work together and it's about not recommending a one size uh, fits all approach. So especially in the management, I see it all the time of IBS when people who have a disordered relationship with food or an eating disorder are recommended to go on a low FODMAP diet without the support of a trained professional. You know, given a fact sheet, unfortunately, from a medical professional, here's how you do it. Go away and do it. We really need to move away from that. We really need to support our clients better. Um, so, for example, if we think about IBS, yes, we know that going on a low FODMAP diet could potentially help you to manage or improve your digestive issues. But equally, we know that hypnotherapy and yoga can give just as good results. So it's really thinking about how we can approach things from a holistic point of view and how we can modify different um, protocols or uh, recommendations doing a low FODMAP diet, for example, at a much slower pace or being much more targeted rather than, you know, here's the six-week protocol that we normally use. Um, so really working with our clients and ensuring that even if they are following these restrictive diets for a medical reason, that we're helping them to look at how they can expand their variety within those medical restrictions and teaching our clients really the skills on how to prepare food. Because I think we've lost the ability or knowledge on how to cook and prepare food, how to make it taste good as well. So really having those skills and the skills to communicate dietary needs at a restaurant, at a cafe, how to read an ingredients list or a label, all of these little things that can really better support our clients so that they don't keep narrowing their diet so they've only got a handful of foods that they feel safe eating. Yeah, it is a really tricky topic, as you mentioned, but I think those are some really good tips and advice and it really does highlight the role of dietitians in the healthcare setting and just coming together as a team to support clients. Um, so we know you speak a lot about intuitive eating on your social media. Could you tell us a bit more about this way of eating, kind of what's the science behind it, how it works and how one can effectively transition to this way of eating? Yeah. So intuitive eating is a relatively new thing um, or new yeah, a method or approach to eating, I should say. So it came out in the 1990s um, and there's two clinicians in America, Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch, um, that first published a book called Intuitive Eating and looked at this uh, principle. So we know from years of research that for most people, restricted diets do not work. Um, they don't result in sustained weight loss and they can really negatively impact someone's psychological health and well-being and quality of life due to the restrictive nature of dieting. Um, so that is why there is a definitely a shift in the last one to two decades to focus more on intuitive eating and health at every size approach rather than that traditional weight loss method of restrict your intake, lose weight, and it's it's not looking at someone's relationship with food and the sustainability of, of the way that they're eating. So intuitive eating, um, for those that don't know, there's 10 principles of intuitive eating, and it focuses on breaking down diet culture and those diet cycles that people might get stuck in from restrictive diets and reconnecting with the body's natural signals around food and also looking at your relationship with food and movement as well. So I think a lot of people think intuitive eating is just tuning into your hunger and fullness. It's so much more than that. But what we know from the science is that people that do engage in intuitive eating, there are just so many benefits. Um, so people with intuitive eating have better body satisfaction, increased self-esteem, 
um, on a physical level, they have improved blood pressure, triglycerides, good cholesterol levels, improved life satisfaction, um, but overall having a better relationship with food and reducing that risk of developing uh, disordered eating or eating disorders. So there is a time and place when we're thinking about recovery from an eating disorder or disordered eating for when intuitive eating is appropriate. It's not going to be appropriate for everyone, especially at the beginning of recovery. So there is a step-by-step approach in how I work to help people to transition to become an intuitive eater. Um, And the approach that we use, it's an acronym called RAVES. Um, So it's actually developed by an Australian dietitian. Um, So R stands for regularity and A stands for adequacy. So that's phase one when we're looking at normalizing someone's eating again. So establishing that pattern of three meals, you know, two to three snacks a day and making sure that the food is adequate to meet their nutritional needs. Phase two is V is for variety, E is for eating socially and S is for spontaneity. So phase two of normalizing your eating. So that's really looking at overcoming food rules or food fears, um, being able to eat different types of foods, increase that variety that we talked about, help the microbiome, um, get that diversity that it needs, be able to eat all types of foods without guilt, be able to eat out, cook for people, eat the food you're cooking, be able to eat foods that other people make for you. Um, And having that flexibility, we're not sticking to times, we're not following a meal plan, we're really learning to tune into more of our internal cues rather than being influenced by external factors. And then the third phase is intuitive eating. So depending on how severe the eating disorder or disordered eating is or behaviours that might be being engaged in, um, majority of people will start with phase one and you will work through those steps normalizing your relationship with food, learning to incorporate intuitive eating principles and then ultimately become an intuitive eater. That's no quick fix. It can take six to 12 months or more for people to establish that normal relationship with food again. Well, thanks for explaining the, how there's that complex process to how you work with clients. Um, it's really interesting to hear about how you have to um, work on that whole area, and it's very an individual, very much an individual approach for your patients. So um, we have one final question for you today, and that's um, what is one thing you do to look after your gut? I think you may have picked up on this already. It was one of the strategies that I uh, suggested before. But for me personally, I really try and focus on getting variety with the food that I'm eating. So that's not only different food groups, but it's also within food groups and types of foods. So for example, people may have heard this before, but I think it's actually really important is when you walk into a supermarket, we are so drawn to selecting the same fruits and vegetables. You know, for me, it's bananas and then buying carrots, green beans and broccoli. <laughs> like it's, you know, you could end up eating the same fruits and vegetables every week of the year. So I think one thing I try and focus on is every time I go um, to the grocery store, I just try and buy one different fruit or vegetable from those four that I listed earlier. Um, something small, something that's really achievable that can really then get you kick-started on trying new foods, finding new recipes and new ways of flavoring and cooking foods. Because I think with vegetables especially, um, a lot of people don't know how to make them taste good. So when people tell me they don't like eating vegetables, I actually say, no, that's not true. It's that you don't know how to cook your vegetables and make them taste good because 
they can be so delicious and they're so versatile. So yeah, definitely looking at that diversity, especially when it comes to plant-based foods. I think that's that's a really good tip. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. A lot of people say vegetables don't taste good, but it's about preparing them the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, thanks for chatting with us today. It was really, really insightful to hear about eating disorders and particularly their links with gut health um, and also some of the practical advice that you gave us on how clinicians and dietitians can support their patients with special dietary requirements. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP. Thank you.